Please rise for the reading of God through 27. Hear now God's word. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. And thus far the reading of God's word and all God's people said. Amen. In his excellent book, Bed and Board, Robert Cabin writes, The husband is over his wife as the head is over the body. It isn't a description of what ought to be, it's just what is. He is the head. He will be a good one or a bad one, depending upon whether, depending, but if he isn't the head, there isn't any other. He is to be the lover, she the beloved. If he doesn't initiate, she will wither of neglect. She cannot supply what only he can give. If the locomotive doesn't pull, the train doesn't move. He then is to love and cherish her, and he is to do it first, because he promised first. She must do it too, of course, but in her own way, as an answering voice, a counterpoint. No human being can afford to settle for being only the occasion of somebody else's pleasure. No wife can long endure being treated as if her chief sexual function were to arouse her husband. That puts the shoe exactly on the wrong foot. She is, after all, a person. If her husband never grows from passion and response into action and love... If he doesn't stop waiting to be aroused and realize he's got to make something of a career of arousing, she is not going to find being a wife much of a fulfillment. In our text today, we are given more than a simple declaration that husbands are to love their wives. We're not left to define love for ourselves. Instead, We are given a clear standard, a clear declaration, if you will, of what that love is to look like, the kind of love a husband is to have for his wife. And so you might have good feelings for your wife. You might find her desirable. You might enjoy her company. You might enjoy doing many of the things that she enjoys doing. And you might even consider her to be your best friend or soulmate. But the standard for Christian husbands goes way beyond those things. Admittedly, loving your wife as Christ also loved the church will be easier if you have desire and fondness and friendship. But the kind of love the Bible requires goes even beyond these things and is not even predicated upon these things. I mentioned before uh, on another occasion an Eric Metaxas podcast where he interviewed the comedian Victoria Jackson, who was from the old Saturday Night Live uh, days from many years ago. And she was a very attractive blonde who played a ditzy character. And she is a strong, professing Christian. And as he was interviewing her, she told of an incident where she appeared for a photo shoot with Donald Trump when he was... I guess between wives, 
and she was single, and she said he was a gentleman, and Metaxas asked her, well, would you, did, he, was, did he show any romantic interest? Uh, would, you consider marrying, would you have considered marrying someone like that? And uh, she said that she could not marry him uh, because he wasn't a Christian and that he would have dumped her a long time ago when she aged out. She went on to say that she needed a man, referring to her Christian husband that she has, who would love her after she aged out and after she had a mastectomy and lost all of her hair. Now that's striking at what it means to love, but our text goes further. We know that Jesus loved the church because he gave himself for her, but it doesn't stop there. He gave himself for her in order that, our text says, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. We see in this that the love of Jesus for his bride involved the past, the present, and the future. He gave, he sanctifies, and he will present. Each of these are set forth as the standard by which a Christian husband is to evaluate himself and to actively imitate Christ. Our ecclesiology, that is, our theology of the church, is critical to our fulfilling our call as husbands. Doctrine and life go together because ideas have consequences. And so we study the love of Christ for the church in order that we might make application of this to ourselves and to our marriages. This will require a lifetime of learning on your part and my part. And even then, we will fall short of what Jesus has done. And so let's begin with this first thing, this past thing. Jesus, it says that he gave. He didn't just give gifts to the church, which he did. He gave himself. Certain kinds of gifts are tokens of love. We might give our wives flowers or cards or jewelry or those kinds of things. Some gifts are acts of kindness, like a pretty new dress or a nice restaurant or a good back rub. Other kinds of gifts make life easier or more productive. A washing machine or a vacuum cleaner or a cell phone. It's relatively easy to substitute things for ourselves. When a man totally gives himself, then the other kinds of gifts will naturally flow from that, so we're not against those other kinds of gifts, as long as we understand that those are tokens of the other kind of giving. But the provision of the other things without the sacrifice of self falls far short of what God calls for. Like the call to follow Jesus, the husband is called first to deny himself and take up his cross. In other words, this kind of call... This kind of love is a call to death. Now this isn't just a theoretical, I would die for you if I had to. Rather, it is a death or a self-denial for the sake of the beloved that is in the here and now. Now I'm not saying that you must spend your life dying. 
but that you must die for her so that God can raise you up. Think about this. When Jesus calls us to follow him and he calls us to take up our cross, to die to ourselves and follow him, and he tells us to, uh, that we must hate father, mother, brother, sister, and that we must give up all our possessions. So I want you to just die to all those things and come to me. And then I'm going to send you back to those things. Here's the resurrecting power of Jesus. And you're going to stand in a new relationship to other people. Your wife, your children, your friends, and your things. And even to yourself. And now as you serve me in those things, you're going to stand in a right relationship to them. And likewise, husbands, as we die for our wives, as we lay down our lives for them, it puts us in a new relationship in a way that we can truly love them because it gets us out of the way. Like Jesus, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. Now we can come close to what Jesus did in his substitutionary, we can't, excuse me, we can't come close to doing what Jesus did in his substitutionary atonement for the sins of the world, but we can, however, imitate it and expect to see God to use that and bless it. Jesus purchased the church with his own blood. So when a man marries a woman, he is laying down his life for her, or he should be. That's the cost of making her his wife. Everything should change. His orientation to every other person, to every other pursuit, is now directed toward her, the object of his love. This is part of the great romance of Christ and the church, the bridegroom and the bride. In fact, this is what Jesus did for every member of the church. Paul says, the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me in order to put me in this relationship. So the single guy who's hanging out with his friends and playing games and doing this and doing that, when he finally meets her, When he finally sets his love upon her, all that begins to change. All that becomes less important. All that goes to the side. And now this new orientation, this new focus, puts all that in a new perspective. And so he sets out to win her, to make her his wife, to woo her. To be a truly great lover is to give yourself wholly to your beloved. All of you, the entire man, give your wisdom and counsel and instruction and example and kindness and humor and conversation and compliments and assistance and labor and patience and trust and joy and comfort, consideration, sympathy, attention, your ears, your eyes, your hands, your feet, your praise, your gratitude, your thankfulness, your laughter, your affection your tenderness, your time, your touch, and anything else that you can think of. Give all of this and any other part of you that might have been omitted from this list, give it to your wife. You are the priest of your house. Show your beloved what sacrifice looks like. And in so doing, you will show her love. Love is about giving, not getting. At least not in the direct one-for-one way. Love does, uh, giving, 
giving love does bring benefits to the lover. He who loves his wife, he'll go on to say, loves himself. But true love always has the long view of things. This is even more necessary, guys, if we have run the ship aground. If we've made a mess of things. If things aren't what they need to be today at our house, in our relationship with our wives, we are not going to turn it around on a dime. As the heads of our households, we are responsible for the course of the cruise, though. And if our ship isn't where it should be, then we have to begin by acknowledging that it's not primarily the crew's fault, but ours. The first mate follows our lead. Great leaders inspire those under their charge to willingly do their best. Great leaders don't start with orders. They start by being examples. I had a boss that would say, I said, I said in my great wisdom at 20, uh, don't ask anybody to do anything you're not willing to do yourself. And he said, no, don't ask anybody to do something they haven't seen you do. Is that the kind of man you are? The kind of husband you are? If you have earned their respect, then they will honor you and love you and serve you. So girls, women, listen, as you consider marrying a man, and it reminds me of a story once, I'll pause and come back to this. I remember specifically it was Pastor Ben House who was 34 and he had an interest in a the lady who is now his wife, Stephanie. And Stephanie was a good bit younger, 12 years younger, in fact. And she had an interest in him. But she came to me and she said, I have a question. Is it a problem to marry an older man? And I remember my answer to her was, yes, it's a problem to marry any man. (laughs) Being older is just one of the problems. He better love Jesus Christ. If he doesn't love Jesus Christ first and foremost, then that's a problem that cannot be overcome. The other problems can be overcome. And so, girls and women, as you consider marrying a man, this is what you need to see and know. That this is a man who is ready to die to give himself for you in imitation of Christ's love. Anything less than that. And you will not know the joy of what it means to have a Christian husband. So, Christ gave himself. And then, he doesn't stop there. He then immediately begins this work of sanctification. He sanctifies. You have secured a wife. Proverbs 18.22 says, He who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains Favor from the Lord. You understand, she is a gift to you. What are you going to do with her? More importantly, what are you going to do for her? Jesus died for his bride that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word. It usually does not take long for a man and a woman to wake up after the wedding and realize that the person that they thought they knew so well has 
shall we say delicately, deficiencies that had not previously been realized, or at least not fully realized. Now what? While this is true for both husband and wife, the husband has assumed the greater responsibility and duty to begin the process of leading the sanctification of the family. He is to be driven by his love for God, and therefore his desire is to see his wife and family also set apart and sanctified to the glory of God. And so he now sets out on this lifelong project of showing the world Christ by personally being conformed to the image of Christ and by also leading his wife to also be conformed to the image of Christ, to lead his family in that same direction. Men, like Jesus, you're called to love your wife into greater and greater loveliness. You love her first, and as you love her, she becomes even more lovely. We love him because he first loved us. God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, that's where he started with us, Christ died for us. And so, men, as you have discovered some deficiencies in your wife, you should begin by remembering that you have a boatload of deficiencies yourself. Second, as one wise Puritan put it, men must choose their love, and then they must love their choice. It is the husband's responsibility to produce more and more loveliness in his wife. This is not a call for him to dress her and put on her makeup. This kind of loveliness comes by way of his self-sacrifice. It's her inner beauty, which is very precious in the sight of God, Peter tells us. Of course, this is the Holy Spirit working mysteriously through the husband in order to accomplish this work. This sanctification began when this man selected this one woman... And made her his wife. She was set apart. She was sanctified unto him. She is his wife and stands in a unique relationship to him as long as they both shall live. This is what Jesus did for each of us. And the husband who has, been, who has chosen this woman no longer looks at other women because he has been, she has been set apart by, uh, for him exclusively. This is the one. And while there are way too many harsh and domineering husbands, let me say this. Abdication is a far more common form of husbands not loving their wives. As Brian Chapel puts it, a husband's abdication of authority is as unbiblical as his abuse of it. The passive, do-nothing kind of man is the opposite of what Christ is for his bride, right? The avoidance of responsibility and the failure to lead spiritually is the sure sign of of an immature and selfish man who knows nothing about real love. Real love is hard. In the case of Jesus and the church... He sanctifies or sets her apart initially by way of the covenant of baptism, cleansing her with the washing of water, 
and secondly, by his regular instruction through his word. The same word for washing here is used in Titus 3.5, the washing of regeneration, the, the labor or the font of regeneration. In fact, that's the only other place that's used in the New Testament. In other words, the love of Jesus is demonstrated for his bride by his formally and publicly making her his wife and then... By his ongoing instruction, he brings her into a higher and higher level of maturity and communion. In the case of husbands imitating Jesus in these things, he also takes her to be his wife in a public and formal covenant. In the wedding, in that declaration that she has been set apart, she is his wife, he is her husband. And then he sets out to provide for her all that she needs in order to flourish and grow. As verse 29 says, he nourishes and cherishes her as he does his own flesh. Of course, the loving Christian husband uses the same word, the word of God, to accomplish this ongoing work of sanctification in himself and in his wife. And then our text tells us that Jesus will present his bride. That he might present her to himself, a glorious church. Not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. The idea of making someone glorious is the opposite of being dishonored. He first draws the physical analogy of glorious clothing, having... No spot or wrinkle or any such thing. And then he draws the spiritual analogy that she should be holy and without blemish. Outside and inside. Recall that in Ephesians 1.4, Paul already stated in this way, he said, Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. And in Colossians 1.22, he stated that his objective was to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. That's the object. Not just to take you to heaven. Not just to rescue you from hell. But to make you glorious. Beautiful. Lovely. Attractive. In the case of the church, that's a lot of work. All the time. This is an eschatological act or future destination. Just as Jesus does this for his bride, so too Christian husbands are to communicate their appreciation for the beauty internally and externally of their wives and to always work to add to that. And as we do so, we see her become more and more attractive and glorious, not only to us, but to everyone else. Moreover, in seeing her beauty and glory, they also see a man who, like Jesus, truly loves his wife. When the world looks at your marriage, when they look at your family, that's what they ought to see. In biblical marriages, the husband is the glory of sacrificial death and the wife is the glory of radiant resurrection The woman is the glory of man, not the shame of man, 
The biblical wife is the crown of her husband, a crown for his head, not something for his feet to walk on. As husbands love their wives as they ought, the result is not surprising. Christian women who are loved this way are the most beautiful women in the world. And it's not a China doll beauty either. Samuel Francis wrote the hymn that we sing from time to time here, and here's some of the words. Oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus. Vast, unmeasured, boundless, free, rolling as a mighty ocean in its fullness over me. Men, we were created to be great lovers. But sin brought that to ruin. It is the work of the gospel to restore us to our former greatness in Christ. This is a process, but it is a process that has begun. And the point of all this is of this message today and what Paul is writing is not to beat us up and to tear us down. But to remind us that there is redemption. God has, because He loves us, because He gave Himself for us, that we men are the bride of Christ, as well as our wives. But we have been the recipients of this kind of love, and He is shaping us, and He is providing for us, and He is sanctifying us. And as He does that in us, we in turn do that with our wives and our families. Philippians 2, 12-16, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to do for his good pleasure. Do all things without complaining and disputing, that you may become blameless and harmless, children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life, that I may rejoice in the day of Christ, that I have not run in vain or labored in vain. Men, our call to do this is critical. This is really the primary way, I think, the gospel is shown to the world and spread. It's first within our own families, with our own children, and then in our congregations as we encourage one another and help one another But the goal of this is for the world to look at you and to look at your family and say, that thing I love to hear the most, I don't know what they have, but I want it. That is gorgeous. That is lovely. I want a wife like that. I want a husband like that. I want children like that. Now, this is hard work. We're not going to get there piddling around. It doesn't just happen. It takes more than just being a nice guy. This is work. And God has called us to the work that that Christ himself did, which is he gave himself to this calling. Men, I challenge you to the same. Let's pray.
Father, when we look to Jesus, we see the perfect, self-sacrificing and loving husband, and we admire him. Yet as husbands, we also feel overwhelmed, for we have fallen far short of his example and know that we have much left to do. Begin in us today by granting us true repentance and faith that we might begin again with our wives to nourish and cherish them as the gifts that they are, the gifts that you've given to us. Help the wives to honor and help their husbands. And may both husbands and wives remember the love and grace of Jesus toward them. May we all be filled with his loving kindness and tenderheartedness toward one another. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Here are a few things that we know about Christ's love for his bride. It's an unconditional free love. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It's a volitional love. He chooses to love us. The Lord did not set his love on you nor choose you because you were more in number than any other people, for you were the least of all peoples. Deuteronomy 7.7 7. His love is an intense love. John 13.1 Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come and that he should depart from this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. It is an unending love. Romans 8, 38 and 39, For I am persuaded that neither life, nor neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. It is an unselfish love. Philippians 2, 5-7 through Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. It is a purposeful love. Ephesians 5, 26 and 27 and we read this morning that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word that he might present her to himself, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. And of course, it is a manifest love. John 10:11. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. And so as we come to the table today, we come as the bride to meet with our groom. Knowing that he has done all of this and much more for us, we are reminded and we renew covenant with him today that we might go forth out of this place and walk with him and live with him and commune with him every day, not just here at the communion table, not just here in the worship service, but day in and day out, wherever we are, he is with us and he will never leave us or forsake us. O Lord our God, we acknowledge that you alone are the initiator and worker of our salvation. We cannot save ourselves, nor can we assist you in saving us. We are the blessed objects of your mercy and grace.
Clearly, Christ demonstrated His love for us, and that while we were yet sinners, He died for us. While we were enemies, you reconciled us to yourself through your Son. The Lord is our rock and our fortress and our deliverer, our God and our strength in whom we will trust, our shield and the horn of our salvation. You are our stronghold. We will call upon you who is worthy to be praised. We will rejoice in your salvation and in your name we will set up our banners. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we will remember the name of the Lord our God. Father, in gratitude for your work of salvation, we commit ourselves to serve you with gladness in this new week, to do so justly, to love mercy, to walk humbly with you, proclaiming the good news of your salvation from day to day, declaring your glory among the nations and your wonders among all peoples. For you, Lord, are great and greatly to be praised. You are to be feared above all gods. Bless now our fellowship and our meal. Bless our resting in you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful, who also will do it. Amen. Amen.